Good morning, church. Over the last year, in past lessons, we've taken a look at faith. The faith of others in Scripture and our own faith. The New Testament words for faith are the noun pistos and the verb pisteo. And we said these were used to denote trust, trustworthiness. What is believed, the contents of belief. Assurance, a ground for belief, a pledge of fidelity. We also said that the aspect of faith has to do with persuasion, affirmation, and conviction that something is true. It is the aspect of believing. There's also the content of what is believed. And in Hebrews 11 and 6, we read, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. This verse illustrates the assent or agreement or belief aspect of faith, in that there are certain facts that we must believe, things that we must accept based upon Scripture the testimony that is given to us. And then in Hebrews chapter 3 at verse 18, we read, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Here it implies that unbelief is the same as disobedience. Now, if you would turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, that is going to be our text for today. It's found in Mark chapter 6, the first six verses. And I'm going to read there, Mark 6, starting in verse 1. And then he, speaking of Jesus, went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. In our study in faith, we found the Bible contains many passages that teach us what we need to know about belief. On the other hand, the Bible also has many things to tell us about unbelief. This morning, we're going to concentrate a bit on passages that teach us what we need to know about unbelief. We first need to point out that those who believe in God 
can be guilty of unbelief. That sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? As we examine the scriptures, we see they teach very clearly that those who believe in God can actually be guilty of unbelief. I'm afraid sometimes that we jump to the conclusion that unbelief is only shown by someone who says, I don't believe in God. Oh, that is unbelief, I assure you of that. But unbelief goes much further than that because unbelief can actually be demonstrated by someone who believes in God. Let me illustrate to you what I'm talking about. No doubt we are all very familiar with Moses. In my judgment, Moses was a great man and a great leader of God's people. In Deuteronomy chapter 34, Deuteronomy 34 at verse 10, it says, But since then there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face in all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, before Pharaoh, before all his servants, and in all his land. And by all that mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. He was a great leader of God's people. Did Moses believe in God? He certainly did. If anyone believed in God, it was Moses. However, in the Old Testament book of Numbers, we find there was an occasion when God said that Moses did not believe him. In Numbers 20, at verse 2, Numbers chapter 20, verse 2, we read, Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. The children of Israel needed water, and this was not the first time that this problem arose. It had arisen earlier, and God had taken care of it. But once again, we find the children of Israel murmuring against Moses and against God because they needed water. In Numbers 20, verse 7, this is what God told Moses to do about the situation. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the assembly together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. Now those instructions are easy to understand. Moses was told by God to take the rod and then speak to the rock and water would be supplied. I'm sure you're very familiar with Moses' actions. So let's continue reading at verse 9. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation before the rock. And he said to them, Here now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Now, I will point out what Moses did that was wrong, but you will never hear me criticize Moses for doing what he did. Why? Because I would not have lasted as long as Moses did. My boiling point is too low. 
I think about all the things that man had to put up with out of the Israelites as he was leading them from Egypt to the promised land. Moses were hungry. Moses were thirsty. Moses this. Moses that. They murmured and they complained continually. And God always provided what they needed. I would say that Moses was a very patient man, but his patience ran out. And from the statement that he made, it appears he was upset. Rather than do exactly what God told him to do, he made the mistake of going beyond, and then he struck the rock. As an aside, it might be a good lesson for us to remember that if you are in difficult circumstances, do not have anything in your hand that you can do damage with. Anyway, Let's notice what God said now in verse 12. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me, to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. What did God accuse Moses of? He accused Moses of not believing him, of unbelief. Did Moses believe in God like no one else except our Lord? Yes, he believed in God. The Bible says he knew God face to face, yet there was a time when God said that Moses did not believe in him. And there were serious consequences. Let's continue in the last part of that verse now. Therefore, you shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. Moses was able to see the land of Canaan, but his life ended before he could go into the promised land. I believe Moses illustrates to us very clearly that those who believe in God can still be guilty of unbelief. I know it sounds like a contradiction, but we've just seen that Moses, who believed in God with all his heart, was actually guilty of unbelief. Later, we will read a number of verses in Hebrews that show that we, that Christians, God's people today, can be guilty of unbelief. As we think about the seriousness of unbelief, we need to point out that the Lord's work was indeed hindered by unbelief. Back to our text, Mark 6, verses 1 through 6. Now, keeping in mind that Jesus was raised in Nazareth, which was a city in the area known as Galilee, born in Bethlehem but raised in Nazareth, considered his hometown here in Mark 6, we read about an occasion where Jesus visited Nazareth. Verse 1 says that he and his disciples traveled to his own country. Look at the reaction of the people when Jesus taught in the synagogue. They were astonished. They said, where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters with us? And notice this. They were offended at him. I would have thought that these people should be the ones that knew Jesus the best. It was his hometown. And yet that was the response when Jesus taught in the synagogue, the gathering of people. According to verses 5 and 6, while Jesus was there, he only healed a few sick people. 
I love to read the gospel accounts of the occasions where Jesus healed someone. They came to him from all over with various diseases, and he healed them every one. But while he was in his hometown, he only healed a few sick people. Notice also that the Bible says Jesus marveled because of what? Their unbelief. He left Nazareth. He went to other areas where he taught. In Nazareth, that unbelief was very serious. It hindered the Lord's work in his hometown. The good news is that the Lord will bless those who have faith. When Jesus went to other areas, there were people that received him. People observed his miracles, and they were convinced that he was the Son of God. And they were blessed abundantly. In his hometown, people were filled with unbelief. Let's look at another example. We're going to look at one where the disciples' power was limited by unbelief. And this we'll find in Matthew. If you find Matthew chapter 10, we'll start at verse 1. And when he had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases. The Lord gave the twelve miraculous powers, and then he sent these apostles out on a mission, as we read in verse 5. This particular mission is sometimes referred to as the limited commission. Because Jesus said, do not go to the Gentiles, do not go to the Samaritans, but only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. From Mark 6, verse 12, we learn that they went out and preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Next in verse 30, When the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. It would have been wonderful to have been there and observed the disciples speaking of all the great things that they were able to accomplish. It would have been a very happy occasion. Now Matthew 17. In this chapter... We read about an occasion when the apostles were not able to heal someone. And we'll start at verse 14 of Matthew 17, where we find that a man asked Jesus to heal his son. And the reason he asked the Lord to heal his son was because the apostles could not. Remember, Jesus gave them miraculous powers. And in Matthew 17, verse 14, And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and, kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures, and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. It says they could not heal him. Continuing, Matthew 17 at verse 17, Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and he came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Why is it that the apostles were not able to cast out this spirit? 
we find in verse 19 that they discreetly waited until they were alone with Jesus. And then they asked that very question. They wanted to know why they were unable to take care of this man's problem by themselves. Let's look at the Lord's response in verse 20. So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief. Now I ask you, did the disciples believe in God? Oh, yes, they did. Did they believe in Jesus? They certainly did. Yet the Lord said they were guilty of unbelief, and unbelief hindered their power to do what Jesus told them to do. Jesus goes on in verse 21. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. The disciples had some faith, or else they would not have tried to cast it out. The fact was, they had previously cast out demons. And I wonder if perhaps they did not go beyond trying to do it themselves, and their unbelief was really a failure to go to God in prayer and humility and ask for help. Perhaps it would help us to keep that in mind and to keep in mind that we walk by faith and not by sight, as the Apostle Paul told us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. We pointed out it's possible to believe in God and yet be guilty of unbelief. We've shown that unbelief hindered the Lord's power to heal people and do great works. And we just pointed out that the disciples' power was limited by unbelief. Let's turn our attention to some warnings that are given to us concerning unbelief. And let's start with 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to begin in 2 Corinthians 6 and 14. It says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord does Christ have with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. This is a strong warning. We are warned to guard against the influence of unbelievers. The Bible also teaches us we're not to extend fellowship to members of the body of Christ who are guilty of open sin. Now, does that mean that we cannot have any association with sinful people? Think about it. To avoid any association with sinful people, we would have to leave this world, wouldn't we? In our everyday dealings with people, we're going to come in contact with those who are unbelievers. And we have to be mindful of the influence of unbelievers because their unbelief can rub off on us. We have to be very careful. 
Perhaps that will help us to appreciate the admonition to assemble with other children of God on a regular basis, because that is a positive influence which we always need. I mentioned before there's quite a bit said in the book of Hebrews about unbelief. Let's turn our attention to several verses and remembering the purpose for which this letter was written. It was written to Christians in the first century who were undergoing some type of hardship, probably some type of persecution. And this letter was written for the purpose of encouraging them to remain faithful unto the Lord and never give up. Now in Hebrews chapter 3 at verse 12, it says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. It's possible for one who has become a Christian to develop a heart of unbelief that leads to a departure from God. Very serious, isn't it? The Hebrew writer gives us an illustration in verses 17 through 19. He says in chapter 3, starting at verse 17, Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. This is referring, of course, to the children of Israel who left Egypt and murmured against God. God caused the nation of Israel to wander in the wilderness for a period of 40 years until that older generation had passed away. When the time was right, the younger generation finally went into the promised land. God was grieved with an entire generation of people. Thankfully, Joshua and Caleb shows us that we do not have to go along with the crowd. We can stand out and we can be different. What was it that kept that whole generation of Israelites out of the land of Canaan? It was unbelief. In Hebrews 4 and 11, we read, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall after the same example of disobedience. Unbelief kept a generation of Israelites out of the promised land. What we need to be concerned about is that unbelief can keep us out of heaven. We have to guard against it. What's going to happen to the unbelievers? Well, Turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Revelation 21. We don't have to go very far in verse 8, but I'll read verse 8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That passage really gets our attention. Unbelief is very serious. Unbelievers will lose their souls. John tells us this in words that are plain and to the point. Turn back now to Mark, this time Mark chapter 9, and let us consider further the request that was made by the man who brought his son to Jesus to be healed. I think this illustrates the importance of looking at all of the Bible, see what it has to say about any given subject. 
We read earlier from the Gospel of Matthew where this man came to Jesus with his problem. He asked the Lord to cure his son because his disciples could not. We also found out the disciples wanted to know why they could not. In Mark 9 and 22, the man said, And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Here the man is pleading with Jesus to help his son. Verse 23, Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Now take a note of the next verse. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. The good news is that unbelief can be overcome. Yes, it's possible for one who believes in God to be guilty of unbelief. Now this man's example shows us that unbelief can be overcome. He recognized the fact that he had unbelief in his life and he asked God to help him. Would it have served any purpose for him to deny that he had unbelief in his life? No. Would it have helped him to go to some other source for help? No. This man demonstrated great wisdom. He acknowledged the fact that there was unbelief in his life, and he asked the Lord to help him, and his son was healed. Next, I'm going to read a few verses from 1 Timothy. The Apostle Paul was the writer, and this was the first letter that we have of him to Timothy the Evangelist. 1 Timothy 1, chapter 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is thanking the Lord. He is expressing gratitude and glorifying God. When Saul was persecuting the church, did he believe in God? Yes, he was a Pharisee. He had been brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. He had reached great heights in the Jewish religion. He believed in God. However, he said he was guilty of unbelief. He was doing his best to eliminate the Christian religion. Consequently, he said he was guilty of unbelief. What happened? He had an experience that taught him differently, and he overcame his unbelief. And then after his encounter on the road to Damascus, he was visited by a man named Ananias, who told him to arise and be baptized and wash away his sins, calling on the name of the Lord, Acts 22 and 16. In Acts 9 and 18, it says he got up and he was baptized. If ever 
there was a changed man. It was Saul of Tarsus, later known as Paul the Apostle. Well, unbelief is a very serious matter. The good news is it can be overcome. The man whose son was afflicted shows us that if we come to the right source, acknowledge our unbelief, and ask the Lord to help us, it can be overcome. Paul, reflecting on his earlier life, that he did some things in unbelief, but the Lord forgave him when he obeyed the gospel of Christ. Here, then, are some principles revealed to us in the Bible concerning unbelief. I thought it might be good for us to consider the other side of the issue since we've covered belief in the past. I think it's interesting when Jesus gave the Great Commission, he dealt with belief and unbelief. In Mark 16, 16, after Jesus told the apostles to preach the gospel to every creature, he said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. There is belief. Then he said, He that believeth not shall be condemned. There is unbelief. Belief leads to everlasting life. Unbelief leads to destruction. In John 8 and 24, Jesus said, If you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. We need to consider the evidence that we find in Scripture and be convinced that Jesus is the Son of God. Believe that with all our hearts. Confess that before men. Repent of our sins and then be baptized in order to receive the remission of sins. The Lord will bless us with forgiveness and he will add us to his church, which is his body. Perhaps there's someone in the assembly today with the need to be buried with Christ in baptism. If anyone has this need or desires the prayers of faithful Christians on their behalf, we encourage them to come forward while we stand and sing.